0: sometimes we forget who we are and who we belong to. We have this kind of spiritual amnesia where uh, we, we begin to act in a certain way because we don't really know what our identity is. We don't really know who we are supposed to be connected to. We've forgotten who we are. In our culture, uh, we are often radically individualized. We are, we are people who Make our identity by making our own choices, telling our own stories. It doesn't matter who we are connected to. It doesn't matter what happens to other people. Uh, We don't don't give regard to what others. We are free from all constraints of every kind, including the constraints of connections, of, of being committed to others. But what we need to recognize, and what I hope you'll recognize today, is that we have an identity in Jesus Christ. We belong to Jesus Christ. We are in him. We should not be disconnected to Him or live in such a way that we appear to be disconnected to Him. Instead, He is our Savior. We have been joined to Him. And in being joined to Him, we are also joined to His people. We are brought together. We, we belong to a church. We ought to belong to a local church. Today we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6. And what I want you to see first is a failure to settle disputes. A failure to settle disputes. First Corinthians 6, read verses 1 through 5 with me. This is what it says. It says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Now, the, the main situation there that, that Paul is dealing with in Corinth is these minor disputes, which they are carrying to court. Now, we ought to recognize that at this point that there are things that, are, that rightfully go to the law. There are criminal cases uh, that that go to uh, the, the the secular courts. God has given the authority to the secular courts to what what He calls in Romans thirteen, bear the sword. That is has the power to execute judgment on those who do wrongdoing. But those aren't the kind of those aren't the kind of cases that that Paul is dealing with here. These are minor disputes. These are these are civil cases. These are disputes over money. These are minor grievances. And yet they are, they are carrying these disputes to the secular courts. They are entering into litigation and, and lawsuits against one another. Now what Paul says in verse 1, it, actually the, the way that the, the original language talks, sometimes it can put a word at the very beginning of a sentence to kind of emphasize it. Uh, and here at the beginning of verse 1, the, the word that's emphasized there is dare. As in, dare you to go to court. Before the unrighteous, how how could you possibly do this? How could you how could you carry your your brother? How could you carry other Christians to court? How could you be doing this? And then he gives some reasons why this ought not be done. He says, verse uh, verse two. He says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Now at the end of chapter five, in verses twelve and thirteen, Paul had said, I I'm not the one who judges the world. We we don't judge outsiders. But what he's talking about there is that in this age. We have no authority. The church does not have authority to legislate for outsiders. It doesn't have authority to execute judgment on outsiders. But at the end of the age, in some way, Christians will participate in the judgment of the world along with Jesus Christ. Then he gives the second reason. The second reason is, he says, uh, do you not know that you are to judge angels? That is, there are beings that are uh, higher than you, and yet at the end of the age, you will judge angels. How much more should you be able to to judge these, these minor trivial uh, uh, disputes, these, these trivial grievances. He's saying like, if you if you are going to judge the world and you're going to judge angels, hey can't you work it out between your brothers? Can't you work it out between Christians? He says so so he says, you are carrying these things to those who have no standing outside of the church. You're carrying it to, to unrighteous unbelievers. They don't know how to judge. They don't have the kind of wisdom that comes from the Spirit. You ought to be able to take care of these things within the church. What Paul is really just dealing with there is the way that Jesus teaches us to settle disputes in Matthew 18. If you want to turn there and and read along with me. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. It says, Here's the way that we settle disputes among Christians. This is a a, a brother wrongs you. You have a grievance against a brother. You go to them. You go to them one-on-one. You deal with it. You settle disputes. Jesus even tells us in Matthew 5 that these kind of disputes ought to be settled quickly. Lay lay down your sacrifice while you're still at the altar. Interrupt what you are doing, even if it is one of the most important things that you will do. Interrupt that, and you go and make it right with your brother. That's the kind of urgency that we have in making things right, in settling disputes, and settling grievances with one another. And these are not things that ought to be taken outside the church, but these are things that ought to be handled within the church. If you've got a dispute, if you've got a grievance with a brother, if you've got a, a, a problem with another believer, you go to them one-on-one. And then, do you know what you have access to? Do you know what, what resources you have within the church if that doesn't work out? you can go and find one or two others to help you work it out. And if that doesn't work, it's something that happens within the church. You can bring it before the whole church, and the church actually has the authority from Jesus Christ to settle those disputes. But those are things that ought not be handled outside the church, but instead things that ought to be handled within the church. Now, that sounds all kind of mundane and, and kind of meaningless, and it, it, doesn't, it doesn't sound like a big deal that we should handle disputes in the church. It doesn't sound like a big deal until you have a dispute with somebody else in the church. You know, recognize that some of these disputes that, that Paul is talking about here, they have to do with money. Things are always simple until you start to bring in money and pride and ego. What, is it, what happens if a brother in the church, you, you do some work for him, He owes you $100 or $250 or $500 or whatever amount of money it takes to make you a little bit anxious, to make you care about it. What happens when that happens? Where where do you go to settle that? Or what happens when you have a problem with a brother or a grievance with a brother and you are convinced that you are right? And you are set on winning because I like to win and you like to win. What happens then? Are those things are those things that are carried outside the church or are you are you committed to are you prepared to have those things settled within the church? Paul is calling us to have these these matters settled within the church. Now, then I don't want you to miss something that is a bigger principle here. And that is the fact that the church under under the authority of Jesus Christ and his word, the scriptures, the church has authority to govern its own affairs. It has the authority to to make, to, to settle disputes, to come to a decision about things. So what he expects is that when two brothers, when they have a dispute and it comes before the church, this is what Jesus expects in Matthew 18. He expects when these things happen and the church renders a judgment, that the person who is who, who has that judgment rendered against them, that they're ready to accept that. Now, like I said, we tend to think of ourselves as, as separated from other people. Paul thinks of us as connected to one another and committed to one another. The the scriptures does not think about us as as being lone rangers, as, as atomistic little beings that have no connection to other people. We are connected to one another. We are committed to one another. We have obligations to one another. And so what we need to be ready to do is to commit ourselves to one another even when things don't go our way. So what happens when, what happens when things don't go the, it, when you don't win the dispute or when your preferences aren't met? Are those reasons for you to, to rebel within the church or cause strife within the church? Are those reasons for you to leave a church? I'm not saying that you you have to give up your individuality or, or, or stay in an unhealthy church. But I want you to be slow. You know, some people change churches much more easily than they change car insurance. It ought not be that way. This is supposed to be this is supposed to be a group of people that we are connected to. These are people that we love. These are people that we have we have promised to love and give ourselves to. And so we ought to think of one another that way. Not think about settling things outside of the church, not thinking about removing ourselves from the church, but instead dealing with matters in the church. And trusting, not trusting in the church, but trusting in Jesus Christ who is the Lord of the church and who has given authority to the church to deal with these kinds of matters. So we see there that the failure for the Corinthians to settle these disputes Next, we see that the Corinthians, they, they have this failure to be willing to suffer loss, the failure to suffer loss. Read verses five through eight. It says, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Look there in verses 5 through 8. Three, in three different verses, he talks about brothers. That's the way that we're supposed to think of one another. You don't, you don't just leave a family. You don't, just, you don't just carry your brother, one of your family members, to court. These are your brothers. And he says, he says, I say this to say that it can be wise that, that there's not somebody wise enough to settle these disputes. Sometimes that, that one or two others, those those witnesses that you're going to bring along, that's going to be their role. They're going to help you to settle dis- the disputes. The ordinary everyday way that we settle disputes and grievances and wrongs against us is that we go one on one. And normally that is going to be you rebuke your brother in his sin, he repents and you forgive him. Sometimes when the dispute is goes bigger than that oftentimes we're going to bring in another uh, another the blessing of another brother who's going to help us deal with that there ought, and there are two things that we ought to have in the church we ought to seek to have one of those brothers that we know who is wise who can help us make decisions who can help us settle disputes that can help us deal with grievances and you know what, we ought to strive to be so grounded in the word that we become that kind of wise man or that kind of wise woman who can help people settle disputes, make decisions, work through grievances. And so let's, let's strive for that. Let's, strive to, have, let's strive, strive to have sages or wise people within our church who can help us to deal with problems that, that, that are going to happen. You are going to have a problem with somebody at some point. Are you ready to deal with those in the ways that Jesus Christ tells us to deal with those problems? That's the question. Now then, Paul has been saying, like, you ought not be doing these things. You ought not be carrying your brother before unbelievers. And he says in verse 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. You're bringing your brother to court because you're hoping to win. In fact, it is probably those who are a little bit more wealthy who are seeking to swindle or to cheat poor brothers out of their wealth, they're the ones who really have the, the power to, to bring it to court. They're bringing their brothers to court, hoping to win. And Paul is saying, if you're going to court, you're, you've already lost. Everybody has lost. When you have a grievance that you cannot settle within the church, everybody loses. Some of us have a history with, with churches that where we've seen this happen where there have been disputes and grievances and at matters that could not be settled within the church, did anybody win in those situations? Never. When you can't settle it as wise brothers who love one another, you've already lost. And he says, why not? Why not rather be defrauded? Why not rather suffer wrong? Isn't this what Jesus did for us? Did not Jesus Christ absorb our losses in himself? And what did he call us to do? He said, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And he said, this is the way that you ought to be serving one another. Absorb loss, suffer wrong. It is better to suffer wrong than to bring God's name in disrepute than, than than to persecute your very own brother. It's better to suffer. It's better to suffer loss. In that way, we we follow after Jesus Christ. We take up the cross that, that he has given us to bear. And we are following him by even being willing to say, listen, this, this is an amount of money or this is something that I really care about. I'm willing to give it up for the sake of my brother because I love my brother. How much better it is. To love one another as Christ first loved us, by being willing to suffer loss and to suffer wrong. Now then, next we see that they fail to live as righteous, and in, in persecuting one another this way, and defrauding one another, and cheating one another, in in settling the bringing these matters to court, they are failing to live as the righteous. Read verses eight through uh, ten with me. He says but you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. There are two applications to this. The first one is that 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 word there in verse nine, where he says unrighteous. Notice that he that in verse one it was they who were carrying these things before the unrighteous. That that these people, those people that you are carrying these matters to, they're not the ones who are going to be judging the world. They're not going to be judging angels. They're not going to be inheriting the kingdom of God. Why are you carrying your disputes out there? You you have a the, the way that Paul views the church is this kind of radical counterculture, counter-society. One day, the earth is going to be filled with nothing but the people who are the church. It is going to be the society of the people who make up the church. And so why would you carry it to those outsiders? Why would you carry it before those who have no standing in the church? So don't carry it before the unrighteous. But even in in closer proximity, you look in verse 8. He says, you yourselves are wronging and defrauding. Don't you understand that the unrighteous are not going to inherit the kingdom of God? are, Are you not afraid to wrong your brother? Doesn't it, shouldn't it strike a little bit of fear in you? A little bit of trepidation that you would even think about carrying your brother in Christ to law, to the court, to wrong him? Don't you realize that that those kinds of people do not inherit the kingdom of God? Now what he's talking about there, he's not talking about he's not talking about Christians who stumble in many ways, the way that James tells us that we all will. He's not talking about Christians who sometimes do what they do not want to do or don't do what they what they want to do, as as Paul describes it in Romans seven. He's not talking about about Christians who sin momentarily or periodically. He's talking about people who in unrepentant sin continue in these kinds of activities. He describes them in verses 9 and 10. He says not the sexually immoral. This is kind of a catch-all term for all kinds of sexual immorality, uh, especially fornication. He says not nor idolaters, those who participate in the worship of idols, which was happening in in Corinth, nor adulterers, those who commit extramarital affairs, who who uh, who take their their neighbor's wife nor men who practice homosexuality. And that's actually two terms there. Uh, some translations will, will recognize that. One is the, uh, it, it is, one is the more uh, effeminate partner in the homosexual relationship, and one is what the New Revised Standard Version helpfully uh, translates as sodomites, those who are the more active partner. But however you approach it, homosexuality is clearly condemned. Nor thieves, nor greedy. Okay, Those, those people who rob people or take their money uh, or those who, who long or love money. Later on, he says those who swindle, that is, those who cheat. These are the con men. These are the ones who, who take money from others without anybody realizing it. Then you have the drunkards and the revilers often to go together. The, a drunkard is one who is continually intoxicated by alcohol, controlled by alcohol consumption. We could even expand that to other, other intoxicating drugs. And the whole idea of a reviler is one who has angry and abusive speech. Those kinds of things go together. Those people who continually practice those kinds of things, he says it twice. He says, those people will not inherit the kingdom of God. And what does he tell them about this? Do not be deceived. Why does he have to say that? Because some people are deceived. Some people think that they can live in in sin, that they can live continually in the practice of sin and still inherit the kingdom of God. Listen, we recognize, we've, we've talked about already in, in the book of 1 Corinthians about how all of salvation is from God, from beginning to end. And yet none of us should think that the grace of God leads to a life of unrepentant sin. If we have genuine faith, it is going to produce a change in our life. If we have genuine repentance in our life, it is going to produce change in our life. It is not going to produce a life that is continually given to these kinds of activities. Do not be deceived. If we've come to know Jesus Christ, if we are connected to Jesus Christ, let's be done with this kind of life. Let's not be the kind of people who who defraud our neighbor, who defraud our brother who cheat or swindle or commit sexual immorality. These are things that ought not be heard among God's people. We should be instead characterized by love and holiness and leave these things behind. Well, that's really what we get into in verse 11. Where we, have the, we see the failure to recognize their identity. The failure to recognize their identity. Look at verse 11. He says, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit of our God. You look there, verse eleven. He says, "And such were some of you." All those activities, many people in the in the church in Corinth could remember those things, when they had engaged in greedy swindling, cheating, robbery, when they had committed adultery and fornication and homosexuality when they were engaged in drunkenness and revelry they they were doing those things some of us were doing those things in fact all of us were in that category of people all of us were counted among those who were unrighteous all of us at one point were sinful disobedient rebellious against God's word that's who we were We were far away from God. And yet look at what happened for many of us. He says, but you were washed. You were changed. In a moment, at a moment in time, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you were cleansed. You were washed. He says, you were sanctified. This whole idea of you being set apart as God's people. You, you, were pulled, you were pulled out of the world. You were pulled out of what was impure. You were, you were pulled out of that which was profane and ordinary and common. And eventually to be destroyed. You were pulled out of that and set apart as a holy people. You were justified. That is, you were disobedient. You yourselves were sinners. You deserved to hear the pronouncement of guilty upon you. And yet you were pronounced as justified. This includes the idea of forgiveness. Your, idea, your your sins, when you trust in Jesus Christ, your sins were forgiven. And yet it means even more than mere forgiveness. It means that the righteousness of Jesus Christ was credited, was granted to you. It was counted as your own so that God says about you that you are righteous, you are acceptable in my sight. And so for those of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ, We we are washed. We are sanctified. We are justified. That is who we are. At a moment in time when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we were moved from one category of people to another category of people. From the realm of these people who are known as the unrighteous to these people who are justified, sanctified, and washed. How would you like to be a part of that group? How would you like to be cleansed? Sanctify, justify. It happens through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what what Paul says. He says you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. That is based upon the authority, based upon the righteousness, based upon the obedience, based upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died on the cross for sinners and and rose from the dead so that you would be saved. And by the spirit of our God, what the spirit does is he takes us and He so this is this connection. This is this binding that happens that the Holy Spirit does. He takes all of these blessings, all of the cleansing, all of the sanctification, all of the justification, takes all these blessings of salvation. And he he takes those that belong to Jesus and he binds them to us. He applies them to us. He takes them and he he connects us to them. That is what we are. If you trust in Jesus Christ, if you trust in Jesus Christ now, that is what you become as one who is washed and sanctified and justified. And yet that that is not the end of what Paul is trying to say. All of these things are, these are blessings that happen in a moment. These are events. These are, these are changes in status. These are changes in position. We're moved from the dirty, from the filthy, to the clean. We're moved from the, from the impure to the holy. We're moved from the unrighteous to the justified. All those things happen in a moment, but they have implications for how we live now. So his point is something like, if you were washed, how can you go on living a filthy life? How can you do that? How can you go on in sin, living a life that is characterized by sin and its filth? How can you live a dirty life? You were washed, so go live a pure, clean life. You were sanctified. You, you were taken out of the realm of, of the world. You were taken out of the realm of the impure, of the profane. And you were made holy. So how can you go on living a profane, a sinful life? A life just like everybody else. How can, how can you do that? You are sanctified, so go live a holy life. You are justified. But if you are justified, how can you go on living in unrighteousness? You need to be who you are. You are made to be something else. You are moved out of the realm. You are moved out of the filthy, out of the profane, out of the unrighteous. And you were washed, sanctified. Justified. So now go live as those who are washed and sanctified and justified. All of those all of those blessings of changes of status, changes of position, they have implied in them this progression of moving from those who were once lost, once in sin, once unrighteous, to those who are being transformed to become like Jesus Christ the one who died for us. And so let us live that way. Let us be done with our old way of life. Let us put off all of these things that are talked about here. Let us put off robbery and sexual immorality and greed. Let us put off drunkenness and angry speech. And instead, let us, let us strive to be like Jesus Christ. He has washed us. He has sanctified us. He has justified us. And so let us live a clean life, a holy life, a righteous life. Father, uh, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the everyday ways that you are at work in our church. The everyday ways that you are, because we are connected to Jesus Christ, because we are connected to one another, you are working out matters. You are selling, you are working through people to settle disputes. You are making it where we are not continually at odds with one another, but instead we are a family of faith. And help us to recognize how, how we are bonded, how we are connected to Jesus Christ. To know that we are washed and sanctified and justified in Him. Help us to live that kind of life. Live a life that is, is holy and pleasing in your sight. Help us to be done with our old way of life, to put off our old man, to put off our old self, and instead put on put on humility, put on love. Love one another. In all of the radical and all of the in all of the wonderful and all of the blessed ways that you have called us to love one another. By your spirit, work in us to be like your son, to even be willing to suffer wrong, to even be willing to suffer loss. For the sake of your name, for your glory, and for the good of our brother. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.